hello and welcome. Uh, this is a session for pitching for non-scripted. So we're going to be talking about coming up with an idea, developing it, and how to get it in front of the right people. It's a very small room and I've got a very loud voice, so uh, <laughs> I might not need this. But anyway, um, a little bit about myself. So I'm Geoff Powell. I'm an executive producer at a production company called Second Star. I have been a commissioner as well as an exec producer in the indie world, so uh, I think I was asked to come along, so apparently I've got insight and knowledge. Um, a few housekeeping bits. Uh, we'd love to hear about your highlights from this weekend, so share them with us using hashtag GuruLive. Uh, follow at BAFTAGuru on Twitter, and then check out the website for loads of inspiring information. This session is being recorded, I think, just audio. That'll be available on the website very soon. Hello. <coughs> Come on in. So we've got a wonderful panel who are going to share all of their knowledge and uh, insight with you today. First up, we've got Helen Veal at the far end there. Helen is the creative director of Outline. Together with her team, Helen has devised and produced some wonderful factual entertainment and popular factual brands. Health Freaks and Fat Family Tree for Channel 4, Extreme Parental Guidance, and Economy Gastronomy for BBC Two. That's a really hard title to say, by the way. <laughs> Give Helen a round of applause. Next up, we've got Chitsi Karangwa. She's development assistant producer at Outline with Helen. Uh, in 2017, Chitsi was selected for Edinburgh's One to Watch. Uh, and prior to Outline, she worked at Darlow Smithson on Word of the Year and Betty on the Undateables. You'll notice I'm flipping my chart quite regularly because I'm blind, so I've had to write everything really big. So I get through about two words, and then I've got to turn over. Uh, next to Chitsi, we've got Guy Davis, who is factual commissioning editor for Channel 5. He's commissioned a broad range of series from One Night With My Ex, The Great Model Railway Challenge, and Gangland. Prior to commissioning, Guy is an award-winning producer-director who's made series for an array of broadcasters domestically and internationally. And last but by no means least, we've got Rianne Archibald, who is currently development producer for Expectation in their comedy entertainment department, most recently writing and producing The Big Nasty Show for Channel 4, previously at Initial, writing voiceover for Celebrity Big Brother, at Open Mic Productions, writing for Josh Widdicombe and Alex Brooker. Welcome all. Thank you very much for coming on Sunday afternoon. Uh, right, let's start with a quick fire round. And I just want to know, what was your first successful idea that you ever got commissioned? Helen. Uh, that's so long ago, I can't actually remember. Um, I actually think one of the first things I got commissioned was a comedy lab for Channel 4, which was a sort of new type thing. So first off, after we started Outline, I think that was one of our first commissions, and I did something that I would absolutely never recommend today, by physically ambushing the commissioning editor, who I knew had gone to a large rival production company for a meeting, and I positioned myself outside in the street so that I could buttonhole her, pitch my idea, ask for a meeting, and that resulted in our first commission. I don't think I've got the stupidity or the balls to do something of that sort now, Sort of slightly stalking a total stranger. Anyway, that was our first commission. 
actually, whilst we're talking about kind of takeout, we were having a little chat before we started this session, and uh, somebody on the panel mentioned that once at Edinburgh, somebody put an idea under the cubicle of a toilet that a commissioner was in. I really advise that you don't do that. As someone who was a commissioner, that would freak me out, and I would never contact you ever again. <laughs> Titsy, what about you? Oh, I feel like I'm going to have a little cheat because I feel like I haven't really had a big broadcast one of my ideas made. But um, when I tried to get into TV the very first time, I worked on uh, WhatsApp, which is like this program that you make for Sky. And I feel like that was like my proudest moment when I pitched an idea to do something about Afro-Caribbean hair. But it was like from an arty and like scientific background. And it like made it into like one of the items. So I ended up with three overall, which was, you know, being a leader in, in the arts and culture team. <laughs> yeah, big up, what's up? <laughs> yeah. Guy, how about you back in the indie world? Uh, yes, it was uh, quite a while ago. But uh, one of the things I do remember, which was a few years ago was I went to the Grierson Awards and I spotted Alan Wicker and he was a bit of a hero of mine and I went up to him and chatted to him and said what do you what, what, what if you could do something now what would you do and he said I'd do my war because I was a, a photographer during the war and I thought oh, that's really interesting um, and then just held that in my mind and eventually I think it was Charles Fenner at Channel 4 I mentioned it to him he said actually we'd do Alan Wicker and it was commissioned, and it was a fantastic story, yeah. amazing story. Um, and it was just one of those things that just that one conversation just led all the way through to being a really fantastic show. Fab. And Rianne? Um, my first commission was a sort of odd fact end idea, which is n unlike anything else I've ever worked on in my rest of my career, really. Um, and it was sort of old veterans doing sort of charity work, basically DIYSOS, but with veterans. Um, and it was quite an odd thing. We filmed the first episode. There was, we had our presenter, she was brilliant. And then halfway through the series, she fell ill. We decided to keep making it anyway. Um, and it turned out, as you'd expect, very weird. <laughs> that halfway through the series, you suddenly have no presenter. Um, it didn't come back for a second series. Um, and no one will ever remember it. But hey, it was the first commission. Brilliant. Well, congrats. Let's long continue getting ideas away. Um, so let's start with you, Helen. You're in the shower. Light bulb happens. Brilliant idea. What are the essentials to then take that forward? Um, I think there are an infinite number of ideas, and the only ideas that really are valuable are ones that you can send and get onto the TV. So I think when you have that, when I have that sort of light bulb moment in the shower, if indeed I do, or you know, you're reading the papers or you're looking at stuff online, you think that's interesting, that's interesting, that's interesting. Often the thing that has to happen is uh, sharing it with other people and being open to the fact that maybe you were wrong and maybe it wasn't interesting because quite often it, you're not right and you have to be really robust and think. I've had all sorts of ideas. Many of them have to get culled because you don't have the energy to take them forward. And so sometimes you wake up the following morning going, why the hell was I interested in that? I'm not interested in that anymore. So I always think there's a sort of little moment where you have to, can you get buy-in from everybody else on the team? And sometimes if you don't get buy-in, you need to try again and explain again because maybe you didn't say, you didn't convey it properly or there's some aspect of it that you haven't shared. But ultimately, if after you've given it your best shot of explaining it to the people that you're working with, they're not up for it, park it. Because you might not be wrong, you might not be right now, uh, but you just have to let stuff go. Yeah, and just 
take your eyes to our screens because we've got some words of insight coming up in terms of how to the essentials of getting those ideas away. And I think it's really interesting what Helen said then about parking it. I've always done this thing where I have kind of a back catalogue of dead ideas because whether it's specialist factual, whether it's reality, it may not be, as you say, right now, but actually in two years' time, that could be the thing that everybody's looking for. Because that, that thing about being right now, I think I've just looked up there and seen this phrase, what's the hook? I always ask myself, and, we, and the team ask us, of the, the sorts of questions that a broadcaster and a commissioning editor is going to ask, and often they're asking, what's the hook? It might be a good idea, but what justifies them spending their money on it right now? And this question of things having a hook. And sometimes you can be really, there's a, there's a hook that's really obvious. I want to do a program uh, about the First World War. Why now? Because it's 100 years since the First World War. But sometimes that why now is something that's a little bit harder fought so it could be something where you've seen multiple, multiple news stories or articles that relate to a particular trend, and you've come up with a format or idea that really speaks to that or really captures that sort of conversation that people are having. This isn't an idea of mine, but I remember having incredible format envy back in the day when 2020 came up with a, a series called Lad's Army that became Bad Lad's Army, because although it was something that was historic about the experience of people going through basic army training, it really tapped into a sort of conversation that you that was being written up in the papers or that people were having in the pub, and they probably still are having that conversation. Have the youth of today gone to pot? Should they bring back national service? You know, are young people all factors and irresponsible? All of which I don't agree with, but it certainly captured that sense of a conversation that was real and happening in people's lives. So I think it, whenever I'm bringing an idea forward to the team or when the team bring ideas forward, I want to know that hook question, why now? Why would, we, why would viewers be interested in this particular thing at this particular moment? Because that's a question that any commissioning editor is going to have to answer when he or she is taking that idea forward in the hierarchy. So I sort of think that's... And, 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 and it, having a hook and being really contemporary doesn't, it doesn't always have to be about something that feels brand new or instantly of the moment. It's just that question you've got to ask yourself. Why would somebody really spend their time any evening soon watching this on telly? Yeah, no, I think, I think that's really interesting. And I think obviously getting the why now is, is crucial. But then on the other side of the spectrum, what you can probably do is sometimes, and it's interesting what Guy said, is find talent. Because there's often, as a commissioner, I've sat and gone, I love that person. I have no idea what they would do on my channel. And I have no idea what it would look like. But what, what would happen if we brought them to the channel? And I guess, Rianne, you've had experience with talent. Do you develop ideas around talent? Or do you like to develop a top line idea and then go, who can slot into that? Um, I think in comedy entertainment, uh, most of the time you are working around talent because, you know, they're all going to be vehicles for comedians. So there are, there's the odd time that you'll come up with a format and it doesn't kind of matter who's in it and you just let anybody slot into it. You know, those sort of um, panel shows, for example, a lot of people are quite interchangeable, let's face it. But um, most of the time, yeah, you do, you do need to find that one person who is doing something different or doing something unique um, which will answer that why now uh, question mm, exactly. uh, that Helen raised. You have to have this person now because they're massive on Instagram, they're doing loads of stuff on socials, they're big on Twitter, you know, whatever it is that makes that person the person that you want to make a show with. Um, you know, they very much comes first, the people, a lot of the time for us. Um, and you sort of have to develop the idea that is authentic to them, the other person that you want to work with. Don't try and fit them into something that you've just invented. Make the show that they would want to make. And that's the sort of, make it authentic, really, for that person. 
So you were part of the team, obviously, that developed the big nasty shows. So would that come from the talent because you went, he's such a big synonymous face on social? Or did you kind of go, right, what's a conversational piece that we can get a kind of talking show with comedy and values, and then he's the right person for it? How did it happen on the big nasty? Uh, it was both things at the same time. We'd been sort of thinking about, um, you know, those anarchic days of Channel 4 where they had shows like The Word. Yeah. That doesn't... They didn't feel like that existed anymore. There wasn't a show that did anything like that. And we were trying to come up with ideas that sort of tapped into that sort of anything-can-happen kind of feel. And we never sort of quite nailed who the person was that could pull that off. Um, and then, sort of alongside that, we discovered Big Nasty, so all the sort of ludicrous stuff he was doing on GMTV in the mornings. Um, you know, Mo was massive, we loved him. And it just sort of fell into place, really, like both of these things. You want anarchy, you want someone who's gonna say mad stuff that you can't predict. Big Nasty is that person. Um, so we were sort of very lucky that we wanted to do one thing and then he fell into our laps and we ended up with the lunacy that it was. And you've got a second series. Yeah, we've got a Christmas special first, oh. um, which will be on, obviously, over the Christmas period. Um, and then the second series starts um, early next year, hopefully, April, May, it should be on. Well done. Um, I realise I'm rattling through everything, but there is so much to get through, so uh, you're just going to have to kind of keep up, I'm afraid. Uh, so we've got an idea. You've got the hook of why now. There's talent or there isn't talent. Chitsy, well, how do you take it forward then with your development team? What's the next process? Research, loads and loads of research, because you have to know your idea, like, inside and out, the topic area, like, what makes it different, what makes it unique. And my old boss always used to say, Chitsy, what are the fuck me facts? And so, sorry for swearing, but that's literally it. You have to say things that surprise people, and they'll be like, oh, my God, I didn't know that. And then after that, you have to write it well, and Helen will read it over with her green pen <laughs> and make marks and how you should change it, and then you send it to the commissioner. And sometimes you do a taster tape as well. Um, it all sort of depends on the idea. And uh, I think let's go to the other side now, because there's no, I don't think there's a rhyme or reason in how to develop. I think every company does it differently, mm. um, and I think every commissioner likes working differently. Guy, do you like people to kind of email you in a top line, come in with a headline, or do you prefer someone to come in with a fully formed, here is your programme? Uh, um, not the last one, really, um, because I think that, that it's very, very rare for something to arrive fully formed. It's very, very rare. Um, but I think that, I mean, how I feel about ideas is really the idea is really one line. You know, if I know what the billing is in Radio Times, or I know what the promo is going to be, then I know what the idea is. Uh, so it is quite. It's it's about honing it down. Um, for us, I think. Um, the, the, I think you're right about why now. Obviously, that is a big question that everybody asks when you think about an idea. But I think also there's something else which is really critical, which is about thinking about the channel to which you are pitching, the slot you're after, um, the kind of part of the schedule you're looking at. Because I think it, there's something that is about, say with Channel 5, there's a particular taste and a particular flavor to that channel and the individual slots in it, which is, and it's different from other channels, and other channels are different from it. So certainly when I was a producer, you know, the thing that would actually get you furthest, I think, is really working out what you're pitching at. 
not just who, but what, what's the flavor you're trying to get? So for us, for example, I mean, I'm, we're, we're going to look at uh, a bit from Rich House Poor House, I think. Um, with that, that originally came in um, uh, called something like Payday Swap or something like that, which was like, yeah, I don't know, there's something in that, there's something in that. What, but it wasn't until Rich House Poor House. Then it makes sense. Then it feels like a Channel 5 show. So that, it was, it was kind of the title, it was the attitude, um, which just sort of made you think, you know what, that is, that is really good. I can see it, I can see the show, and I think that's, that's if you have a relationship with the producer uh, in that sort of discussion, and you kind of suddenly get it, you just know it's, you sort of just know it's right. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, because obviously we all create ideas, and if a channel's gonna say no to it, you obviously want to be able to pitch it to another channel. I think a lot of the time people make mistakes where they go, oh, I'm just gonna change the BBC logo for an ITV logo. And one thing you've got to remember, as, as Guy was saying, every channel has a really clear identity, and it's like a personality. So you've got to go back through your idea and go, actually, that would happen in the BBC version, not the ITV version, and actually they wouldn't be called it that for the Channel 5 version. So it's something to really have to, adapt and work up for the right channel because you can read as a commissioner. That's right. and, it, and it is a flavor and you, you, I think the more experienced you get in terms of development producing, the more you, you get that. Yeah. Um, and because it's quite often somebody comes in to see me um, and I can instantly say to them, that's a, that, no, that's a, that's a BBC Two program. You know, it's yeah. not a Channel Five program. And I think getting that sensibility of just knowing you can kind of sense it I think once you get once you get more experienced you can think that is shoulder peak of BBC two yeah. that is a village you know um, uh, what are those those series I know sort of slightly was that that ITV 830 flavor which is presenter driven but it doesn't quite have an edge which would make it funnier channel five where we might put celebrities in in um, caravans you know it just there is a difference and I think that's the it's hard, but I think that you do learn it. I think you do begin to soak it up, actually. And I would always say the other thing is, like, watch the channels that you pitch to so that you understand those different flavours because that is the key. Because if you're selling, which you are, I mean, it is a selling job. I've, you know, I've done it for 20 years. And it is about knowing your market, knowing your customer. Because at the end of the day, you're going to write a big cheque. Um, but if you haven't got the right take... So it's about having the right take when you go to see the, the broadcasters, I think. I mean, I really agree that you've got to watch the channel that you're pitching to. And I sort of think you have to know a little bit about your own limits, that not... Partly that's a financial thing. We've got a development team of a certain size. You, Although you don't want to whack enormous developed treatments on people's desks before meetings, you are going to have to do some work. You are going to have to really dig in and know the facts of the situation that you're pitching about. And you can't do that for every kind of program. And the same way as having good, fresh relationships with new talent, you can't do that with every single kind of talent. So uh, I think you have to have a, not total specialism, I don't think it's sort of, we only do access documentaries and we couldn't possibly do something else. But in order to have the familiarity with the slots and the tone of the channel and the style of programs and to know what's new and what's not new in your own genre, 
I think you have to have some sense of where your primary interests are and really do the yards and watch the shows, watch all the formats that come out in your area. I mean, I, be I bet you spend a huge amount of time going and seeing comedy talent and, and so that you know who really is new on the scene, who's up and coming, so that when somebody says, oh, we need a fresh voice, you know who they are. I haven't got a clue, but I hope that I have some sort of clue about some more of the genres that we're working in. So it, people sometimes think that development is just about, hey, I'm really creative, I have good ideas. And that's one part of it, that's like the first percentage point. And the rest of it is actually a, a bit of application yeah, and, and digging in. Actually, you've got to be quite strategic, I think. Yeah. So let's take it back now to the actual principles of working together. So development teams, we've talked a lot about development teams. Rianne, how does your development team work? Is it very much a someone has an idea so they look after it themselves or do you all collaborate? Do you swap around with each other? Um, it's a bit of both really. I mean, I don't think there's a one approach method that works wholly for all development teams. Um, it's very much chemistry-based, you'll find, in development teams. And sometimes that chemistry is off. When you get the right mix of people and it really gels and it works and you come up with good stuff, you'll work in a completely different way. Um, for us, if you have an idea and you believe in it and you back it, you'll, we'll talk about it together, we'll all discuss it. Sort of, you know, as Helen was saying, you have to sort of check whether it is something that is funny, is it interesting, will anyone care, is anyone going to watch this? Um, and you do sort of, you know run that by your team and we will hash it out and try and work out what the format points are and what the hook is and who the talent is and stuff and then we do sort of let that person write the treatment and sort of own it a little bit because they've got the idea they've got the passion for it they're going to write it better than anyone else in the team's ever going to be able to write it and then we'll sort of do the filtering and you know, sort of sense check it and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you do need to have a little bit of ownership because it, it, it will come across in the passion and the way that you write it. And when it goes, to, we're very lucky in our team. Our creative director is very generous and with, you know, dishing out responsibility. So he'll let people go to pitch meetings and stuff if it's your idea. Because ultimately, you're going to sell it better than anybody else yeah. is going to. Um, but yeah, it genuinely sort of is if you've, if you've developed it and you like it, you sort of have to own it and really sort of see it through to the end. And it, it's more rewarding for you as well on your team rather than sort of coming up with all these top lines and sending them off and then never seeing them ever again. And you're like, oh, you've killed it. <laughs> but it's, if you kill it, it's fine. Just don't let anyone else kill it. <laughs> exactly. I think that's a really interesting point about taking the person that's developed it to the pitch meeting. I grew up in an era where, God, as a researcher, you were self-shooting and editing and doing every job yourself, whereas there's loads of different roles now. But I was exposed really early on to commissioners, and I think, as Guy said, we are salespeople, so you've got to learn very quickly how to sell an idea and how to react to some pretty difficult questions because, you know, Guy will sit there, and he may have just heard the best idea of his life the hour before your meeting, so you've got to go in there and convince him that that wasn't the best idea of his life and yours is. And I think, you know, I'm not sure Helen will agree with me or disagree with me, but you know, I'll help my team work up the ideas, but I haven't sat and done all the natural research that they've done. So your development team will know a stat or they'll know something that they've read that they can chuck into conversation in a pitch to go, okay, yep, see, guy, I know what I'm talking about. Thanks very much. Yeah, it's definitely a team sport, and I really like the way you described it. It's a team sport where maybe there's a moment where somebody is really taking the lead, and maybe a relay race, but I, that balance between somebody feeling real ownership over something, but also everybody chipping in, critiquing. Uh, I kind of feel we sometimes we work best as a team, 
maybe the final stages of a funded development, where it's totally legit for everybody to be dropping everything and you're all together working on one particular project with real focus and everybody's different strengths are chipping in. And then there are times when you work more loosely that people are pursuing to a much, much less developed degree a lot of individual ideas that they're interested in. And then, I'm terrible, I'm going to say the word cull again. There has to be a point where you decide we're dropping that one and that one and that one and we're running with that one and that one because you just don't have the resources all the time to be really passionate and really fully informed and really committed to 12 ideas at once. I mean, I've seen some people pitching in a different way, a bit like, you know, a spiv from the war movie where they open their coat, ching, 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 and loads of things drop out. Uh, well, I've got one of these, or would you like one of these? I've got one of this. I just never really feel that that works and that you're much better off going in with one or two ideas. I, mean, I know of some companies where they develop one and they go, well, you're having that one. I'm somewhere in between the two where you've got... Yeah, and you've got to have passion for the few that you've got, and you've got to have knowledge and commitment for the few that you've got. That's it. Recently, actually, uh, I was in with Channel Five. I went in to see Ben Frow, and me and my team had developed three ideas, and we were like, "We think they sound Channel Five. We think they look Channel Five. I can sell this as Channel Five. Went in, pitched them to Ben, and for anyone who doesn't know Mr. Frow, he knows what he likes and doesn't like, and he went, "No, no, no," and that was about ten minutes. And then I went, "Okay, thanks very much," and he was like, "Are you leaving?" And I was like, yeah, those are my three ideas that I thought were perfect for you, and they're not. So I'm not about to go through my arsenal and go, oh, we had that in a brainstorm six weeks ago. Shall I try and pitch it on the spot? Because you end up looking terrible. <laughs> so back to development. We've developed an idea. You've worked it up with your development team. You've got Guy or somebody else in a commissioning team interested. Uh, then you could get funded development. And Helen, did you get funded development for No More Boys and Girls? We Yes. So you've developed the idea, you've got channel interest, you've got funded development. What specifically pushed that show over the line and how important are kind of craft skills when you're developing these ideas? Uh, I think that was a show that sort of ticked our box originally of the hook and why now. It was an idea that came from a news story, a really big furore in the press because Adele took her little boy to a theme park while he was dressed in a Disney princess dress. And some, you know, the comments under these online articles, people are obviously incredibly uncomfortable and uh, challenged by anything that looks at gender stereotypes. And there was also, coinciding with that, out came an, with the annual UN report into gender equality internationally that said Britain was at number 39 and falling in our gender equality. So we then looked for... Uh, so those gave us a sort of why should you look at this topic now and then we found through research some information about how they do schooling in Sweden where they have a legal commitment to gender neutrality so we were then able to say to the BBC here is a topic that people get really aerated about so I think people might engage with this show here is a reason why we should do it now because there's some statistics that say this is a problem that's getting worse and here is a solution that we could road test in the UK that they've tried in Sweden, which always comes number one and number two in this international gender chart. And then the process of getting it from, I think we got a lot of buy-in around that concept very early. And then it was a question of working out how are we going to execute that concept? What is the feeling of it going to be? And it took an awful lot of rewrites of the treatment. We didn't actually have to do casting in advance of the commission, which I thought showed a huge amount of commitment from the BBC, from Tom MacDonald, who was astonishingly, he's just got real insight and is a delight to work with. But we had to work the treatment very hard in order to show how could we make a programme that was driven by issues, 
contained a lot of maybe a bit complicated specialist factual concepts about how brains develop, but that wasn't going to be boring and feel like open university, uh, 1970s feminism, room 101, kind of just something that was going to be dull and dry. So it was really thinking about how the hand of the producer was going to get things started, but how then character stories and human stories and something that would be fun to watch as well as broadly uh, on message for the, for the educational content. So, and then there was also a question of attaching the right talent, who could be somebody who would uh, front the experiment, drive it through, who would be watchable, who wouldn't feel a little bit too much one of the usual suspects who you already knew what their perspective on issues about feminism or you know, gender equality was. But it really was a very good example of how I've described development as a team sport internally, but just as Guy says, development is a team sport that involves you and the commissioners and the channel, that although sometimes you can feel like you just throw your, you know, you throw your stuff at them and then they bat it away, ultimately, they have to be, they're part of creating the idea and working on the idea because they don't get those jobs unless they're really good at making TV. And so you'd be really ill-advised to ignore the suggestions and steers and guidance that you get when you're in that, you know, relationship. You're all in it together to make sure you get your idea in a place that it's proposing a program that the channel overall will go for, and it's proposing a program that's going to deliver an audience, good crits, you know, all those things that everybody involved in a program wants. And that's basically how you make popular factual people. I mean, you've just summed it up very easily. <laughs> that's exactly all the attributes you need for popular factual. Um, so Helen talked there, Guy, about obviously involving the commissioner. And as I said, there's different commissioners work on different ways. Yeah. If you've got something in funded development, or you're making a pilot or a taster tape, how involved will you get or do you like to get with the production company in that process? Uh, I think, I mean, we don't do a lot of um, funded development. We don't do a lot of um, taster tapes in that. I, I think we do more sort of proof of concept because I think that I'm not really interested in a tape that tells me, sells me the idea again because I think I know the idea. The reason I'm that interested in it is because I know it. So what I want really on a, on a tape or something like that is to work it through, to tell me, give me a feeling of what it's going to be like on the screen, crack the problems to a degree. But I think it's a, a lot, because it's not the programme, it's not the budgeted programme, it is a taster. It's, it's a way of... Um, I mean, occasionally we do have tasters which are just so funny, I mean, that you just do them. Uh, but those are few and far between. I mean, I wouldn't discourage people sending me tasters. I mean, we did a show last year called Bad Habits, Holy Orders, uh, which was about four uh, young women going into a convent, uh, which was a brilliant taster. I mean, it was just brilliant. And you watched it and you thought, I totally get this idea. It was just one of those ones that hit, really hit the target first time. But I, I, think, I think we do get involved. I think that, um, you know, ultimately, uh, I have to get a project greenlit by Ben. So I'm there wanting it to be... I'm the sort of person who knows the sensibility of the channel controller probably better than the producer might. So I, will, I know what's going to hit the buttons. I know what the channel wants. Um, so in terms of developing that, taking something which we're maybe perhaps putting a bit of money into to develop, um, that's where I suppose the creative discussions happen and I'll look at stuff and we'll work it out, we'll look at cuts, we'll look at different versions. Um, we'll, if we're piloting something, then I would be very involved in that yeah. um, because that's really 
if it's a broadcast pilot, you know, it's something that's going to go out, and I think we need to make sure that we do it really right, and that we ask all the questions during that process. There's always a post-mortem where you change and you review and you see what the audience thought and all that. But I think in terms of developing a pilot, um, you know, that is something that I would be very closely involved with, yeah. Why, I mean, that was a great success for the channel. I, I thought it was a really great series, and obviously you've done numerous now. Why do you think, when we're talking about the tone of a channel, why did that resonate with the Channel 5 audience? Because I think it's a really smart way of doing quite complicated subjects. I think we've, we'd thought, or I'd thought for quite a while about doing class, and it's like, how do you do class on Channel 5? Like, God, you know, you can't do a sort of big series about class that is sort of, you know, big kind of authoritative documentary series. It had to have a way of coming at the subject that just felt really popular. Um, but it was a really hard one. And then when, when Payday Swap, or whatever it was called, came in, it sort of felt like, actually, there's something in this. There's something in this about class. There's about money. It's about happiness. And happiness was sort of in the air. It sort of felt like that was quite a big thing that people were thinking about. I mean, what makes us happy? And does money make you happy? So the, all those conversations were... So actually, it's a very a straightforward format in a lot of ways. You know, it's two families swapping their lives and living each other's financial lives. It sort of... I thought, yeah, actually, that feels like we can make something of that, that that's entertaining, character-driven, has a real sense of, terrible word, purpose to it. Um, but I don't think that's popular. a terrible word. Well, it is. It's, <laughs> no, but it's, I mean, it's a terrible word in a sense. It's like TV bollocks. You know, they, they, people always talk about purpose and all the rest of it. But so what? You, but it, at the end of the day, it was, it was going to be entertaining as well as say something. Uh, and I think that's what it did. And, and the, you know, the, it's a really well-made series. It's incredibly hard to cast it. But the way the way the format works is pretty simple. But it's executed really brilliantly by Hattrick. And so I think what we found was, you know, that got 2 million, 1.85 million viewers on its first outing, which is a major hit for us. So that's, you think, well, why is that working? Why, because that's what's so interesting, like, why did it work so well? And it did, I think, because within a very straightforward, seemingly quite simple uh, construct, it actually really made people get interested in the bigger subjects, which was happiness and class and money and so that's why I think it really really works it's one of those things that you just sort of, you can see why it works yeah no it's definitely one of those series that that I watched god I've been making television for nearly 20 years and I thought I didn't have a heart anymore and I watched that and it brought a tear to my eye and I think don't forget the value of emotion and emotive content and what that can do for kind of a series you know or even just two singles or you know it can just add so much value and warmth um and also i think a really confident commission because it, you, you can be a bit voguish like it's a swap yeah. and that for a long time you sort of say oh you know swaps are over you couldn't possibly do swaps this was just a brilliant brilliant swap beautifully executed real warmth just lovely, lovely made TV, yeah. and not being no commissioner bollocks getting in the way yeah. of a good idea getting on the That's TV. Very nice of you to say, but and, and also I think that the, the what was really interesting about it, sort of what felt really new, was that it wasn't a swap based on conflict. Mm -hmm. So it was yeah. a swap based on exploration mm -hmm. of another family's life, uh, and the what was what became pretty clear quite early on in the casting of it was how nice the families were. 
I know that seems sort of odd, but it was a sort of antithesis in a way of what the wife swap generation of shows did, which was to pitch people against each other. In this case, it's like, actually, you know, I begin to, I can understand what it's like to have 120 quid a week to, to, you know, to feed my family and, have, and live. And actually, it's not great, is it, if you've got 2,000 pounds a week, but you never see your kids. So all those things sort of just came out of the action, which is really strong. Um, I'm going to try and drive us forward. I'm scared of running out of time. Uh, we've got another clip, which is basically from me. So we had an idea with Channel 4 called Flirty Dancing, and it was all about could you fall in love off a dance? And Channel 4 loved the headline. They loved the top line, but they went, Joff, you can't, you can't make that. Uh, so they gave us a little bit of money. We spent a lot more money. Um, and they asked us to do exactly what Guy was talking about, which is a proof of concept. And I think this kind of comes back to the thing of people going, oh, formats are over. Oh, Channel 4's got loads of dating. And I was like, Channel 4 does have loads of dating, but it's really successful with it. So you can pitch in and as long as you can have a different entry point. Thankfully, that proof of concept worked and we're making a five-part series. Woohoo! Woo <laughs> um, but sometimes, I think, sometimes funded developments or proof of concepts can go completely wrong. I don't know, Chitsy, have you ever had an experience where you've had something put into funded development and it's killed the idea? Uh, yes, actually. It happened one idea at my, when I worked at DSP. They really loved this funded development, but then when we like, worked it out, trying to do it, it was sort of like a living history thing, because DSP does a lot of living history, and they wanted so much more that it was quite hard to make it happen. Because when you do living history stuff, it's quite hard when you try and get people out of the house. Because, you know, like, I don't know if you've ever seen one, there was one of the living history shows where the woman is supposed to be going to the supermarket, which is like a 1950s supermarket. And in the background, you see Tampax and chocolate because they didn't really have the money to like turn the whole shop into the funded development stuff. So then it proved that it would be just more exp expensive and then the idea died down. It's very sad. I think sometimes though it's really good. People get really upset when they're funded developments. I know when, when I was a commissioner, people get really upset when I turned down a funded development. And I was like, I was invested in you. I loved the idea, but we've just proved it won't work. <laughs> like I'm not being horrible. That's why we do proof of concepts and that's why we do pilots. Oh, I don't know about that. Ooh. You own an yeah. indie, Helen. You're going to have yeah, a different I don't opinion. Know. I issue with that. I, I, I sort of think, yes, I, I like the idea that you're invested in it and that you want to help me do it, but like two and a half grand ain't going to really make me a concept tape that's really going to prove much. And I think sometimes, I think being a commissioner, I've never been a commissioner, and I think it must be the sort of job where mostly you just say, nah, no thanks, no, sorry, that won't work, or we've already got one. And sometimes I feel like funded developments can be given out as a way of smoothing the relationship rather than it genuinely yeah. being, I want to work with you to get that on the telly. Yeah. Yeah. So there are times when sometimes I think I, I'll turn down funded developments because I'd actually rather keep the freedom to work on it and take it yeah. in the direction that it's going yeah, rather than true. freezing it at a certain point. But then there are other moments where you just yeah, think, uh, thank you, it's a sign that we're in this together. I think, I think traditionally, certainly when I was making programmes, uh, you know, a long time ago when this was, was, was people sometimes used to put a little bit of money to put a flag in something. Uh, Channel 4 used to do that a lot. And you never knew whether it was really serious. And I think that I'm very aware of that as a commissioner. And so I don't, I very rarely spend money on development actually because I think it's, you know, I know it's great to go away from the meeting thinking, you know, well, we're gonna, we've got some money, we're gonna, you know, the channel really wants to do it. But it's, 
Uh, for me, it is much more about the ideas. Um, and we have a commissioning round system, and things happen very quickly. So, you know, we don't hang about. We, we, we'll commission off one line. You know, it, that's, that's the... In a way, you're absolutely right, is that, is that um, a, a funded development, which is only a sort of... Uh, it's a kind of like a thin version of what you're hoping to do, sometimes can work against you. Um, and I almost don't want to see that. I'd rather have in my head the, the, um, the possibility of what the programme might be and then, you know, go with it and commission it. And I'll... Because to some extent, the, the, the responsibility is on me as much as it is on the producer. You know, I have to deliver it. Um, so actually, it makes me probably more mindful, work harder to make to, to achieve what I think we've both got in our heads when we're talking about the idea. Because I tend... To, uh but the funded development that we got for No More Boys and Girls was basically we'd done an awful lot of versions of the treatment and you get to a point where you go, I think you want this programme. We're all in this together, but at the moment we're all in this together spending my money. So I, you know, I get to a point when you've done a lot of rewrites where you just say, I need to in a way justify to my business partner and to our board that I continue to invest in this particular project. Mm -hmm. But I think there can be sometimes a little bit of a false friend in that tiny amount of money to make a, you know, oh, here's, here's five grand, why don't you cast the programme? You go, well, it's going to cost an awful lot more than £5,000 minus the cost of the edit, minus this, that, to really find the cast. I mean, like with Rich House, Poor House, you couldn't possibly have done a casting tape for that show because you have to have an enormous casting team and a real commitment to find the characters who will make the format sing. So I'm, I'm, ca I'm cautious around funded. I mean, I love them. Yeah, it always no, makes me feel good if you want to give me a little bit of money, but you have to be cautious about what it really means. As you say, I think it's, I think it's vital to understand what that funded development stands for. If it stands for a commitment that you need help to prove it works or to look at cast or to rewrite the treatment because you've actually spent nine months doing it already, great, but realise also what you're giving up on that funded development, which will be rights. It will mean that they can hold it at the channel for a certain amount of time, and so you do have to understand from an independent perspective why you're taking it. Right, we're really running out of time, and I know there's going to be questions. So, we're going to quickly come down now. Idea, proof of concept, channel interested, best pitching secrets. Two or three words. Helen. Stop pitching when they've said yes. <laughs> <laughs> Titsy. Start a conversation because they might start saying things that you might be like, oh yeah, actually, and they're better than what your idea was. Guy. Uh, I think it's about really believing in your idea. I think that's, you know, you, you've got to come in the room, believe in it, yeah. then you can sell it. Rianne. I was going to say exactly what Guy's going to say. You've just got to back yourself because you're going to go in that room and they're going to ask you a million questions and tear it apart and you have to have the answers. Even if you don't have them, make them up, say something and back yourself because if you don't believe in it, yeah. Okay, now we've got a couple What would you say? Hang on, you're, you're good at this. You do good pitching. <laughs> I do good pitching. Confidence. I think have confidence. If you don't look confident, then a commissioner doesn't believe you can make that show. There we go, see? I said that with confidence. It's good. <laughs> uh, right, I'm going to try and bust a few myths now. So I'm coming to Rianne first. Does name-dropping celebrities help? It does in a... If it, I mean, if it's a talent-based idea, then, yeah, that will help you, because a lot of the time, sort of with, certainly in comedy entertainment, they want to know who you see, you know, will be hosting it, who's a part of it. But if it's not... 
if it's not sort of talent focused, there's just no point because sometimes you'll pitch a certain piece of talent, the commissioner absolutely hates them and they might have liked the format and the pitch up to that point. You'll say, oh, let's put him in it. And they go, nah, sick of him. And you ruin the whole thing. So if you don't have to, just don't. Fab. Helen, people often say it's about the strength of the idea. It's not about the strength of the idea, but whom you know. Is that true? It's a bit true and it's a bit not true. I think what you're selling when you're selling an idea is not just a concept, this ephemeral floating abstract thing. You're selling the fact that you are going to make it into TV. And so the, the broadcaster, seeing that, you're, that the production company has the actual capacity to make that idea into television on time and on budget, has to be a part of it. So a good idea that's just sort of floating free of any ability to actually make it into, into TV isn't isn't, it's only half of the picture. But I don't think it's a totally corrupt, closed shop. I don't think you know, everybody in television on the buying side wants to be the person who's found the next really brilliant and really amazing thing. And if you have a really brilliant and amazing thing that they worry that you might not be able to deliver, they won't necessarily kick you to the curb. They may suggest that you partner with a production company who they know will be the right people to help bring it to the screen. Um, and Guy, how important, if you're looking at an access piece, should you, you know, how, should you have secured access before I pitch it to you, or should I run by the idea that I think, let's go to Holloway Prison or whatever it is? Uh, that's a difficult one. Um, I think if you came to me and said, I want to make a series inside Holloway with access, right now I would say, yeah, I'd love that, but you're going to have to show me the access, or at least you have to show me that we're on the process of getting it, because I know how difficult that is at the moment, because I know what the MOJ is like. Um, I think um, what happens with access series is that usually I will, I'll quite often, at the moment, I'm very interested in some access series. I don't think we've got enough. So there's a number of people uh, out there I know, you know, always thinking about potential access. So quite often I'll take, um, you know, somebody will pop over a few thoughts about access, people they're talking to. Um, and we can pick up on one of those. Um, but I don't have to, I, I don't, I, I think it's very, it's very unusual for somebody to come with full, with an access agreement. You know, that doesn't happen. But if I know, and some producers have reputations and experience for doing particular things. So um, I think that I will seriously consider things on access where there looks like there's a real chance of that access happening. Then we work together. Um, if necessary, I will go to meetings. I will write letters for you and all the rest of it. You know, if it's help, if it's any help, in order to secure the access we want for the channel. Uh, and another myth in development, Chitsi, Do you have to pick between being in development or production, or can you do both? I think you can do both. Um, I had a really hard time getting to development, actually, because I was seen as a caster. So for three years, people would be like, sorry, we can't have you on our development team because we don't need anybody to do casting. And it was really, really hard work up until I did this diploma at the National Film and Television School. And I was like, I'm going to push hard and show people that I really want to do development. And I think it serves me well. I don't know, Helen's my boss, if she can say. But I think it serves me well <laughs> because I think sometimes you read a development document and you're like, oh, God, that's really mental because you couldn't really do that. But it helps when you've done a bit of production because you can still make things really exciting but also really be believable. And you need both skills in order to work in development, I think. 
I, I completely agree. And, um, and that's why you're so brilliant and I really love you. <laughs> but also I think there are craft skills in development that are distinct from the craft skills in production. That's true. You know, writing. You do a lot more writing in development than you do in production. There are the way that you present your pictures and your documents has some craft skill about it. Um, but there are some skills that are the same, getting your facts right, doing your research, the casting aspects. So there's a real overlap, but I would definitely say that anybody who is in production and wants to get into development, that's a transition that's possible. Or likewise, sometimes when people have worked hard on developing something and they're really passionate about it, we, we let them go on to the production and work on it, and then they'll come back into development once that production's, you know, been and gone. Yeah. No, our uh, assistant producer that helped develop Flirty Dancing just went on as a producer, her first producing job, because she was really passionate about the idea. She helped make the proof of concept. She really stepped up on the shoot days, and it was it was the only fair thing to do, and she wanted to go into production, so we put her on as a producer, and then she's back in my development team now. Talking about development team, and obviously so we can get some questions in, three attributes you look for in the perfect development producer. Chitsy. Because um, I'm an assistant producer, I know. technically, the producer is like senior to me. So I always look for somebody who's supportive, who's willing to listen and to help you out and stuff, and who also knows their stuff. Like you get, or you both also get really excited about knowing random things and all the ridiculous TV shows that you're watching at the same time. Helen? Uh, I think they need to have good ideas. They need to be pretty resilient, because quite often it's about seeing an idea that you love not quite make it all the way, and that not being devastating for you. And I do think there are these craft skills. People need to be able to write, and we also, when we present our documents, they need to look good. It's your sort of on-paper moment to prove to the buyer that you're going to make a programme that has certain values and certain sort of, uh, you know, what it's going to be like on screen. So good with your PowerPoint, good with your writing, and uh, not too downhearted if things don't go your way. Yeah. Rianne, three words. Uh, sense of humour. <laughs> I like it. I say three words, Rianne gives me three words. Helen goes on. Uh, I think mine were passion, proactive, and personable. And Guy? Uh, I, would, uh, I would say ideas. Ideas, ideas, really. But um, passion and uh, a kind of sense of risk and slight sort of... You know, Knowing an idea that is unconventional, but and thinking it's really out of the box and mad, but having the passion to push it through, because some of those ideas do come in and they are crazy ideas, but something actually is really good. So yeah. Right, we've rattled through everything. Now it's time for some questions. Do wait for the microphone before uh, speaking so that we can hear you. And if it is specifically for one person, let me know who. Otherwise, I will decide who. Hi, you guys. Um, um, my name is Variety. I'm a stand-up comedian, um, an actress and writer. And um, I have about four ideas, documentary, game show, and all sorts. But um, I think my challenge is, is that really who to turn to? Because now, I think over the last few years, my opinion, I've been seeing British television really damp. Until I saw a big nasty show and all other stuff, you know. But um, but before then, I'm seeing it very damp, especially with like Saturday night television. Um, it's become very predictable or politically correct. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, how do I get my stuff forward to someone? Do I have to use social media? Do I have to use uh, YouTube as a sort of uh, platform? Or are you talking about your ideas or you as a talent? A bit of both, actually. 
Okay, well, I'm going to go to the channel on the panel. Guy, how would someone independently get an idea to you? Um, I would say find the right producer to work with because we don't take ideas from individuals. We can't, we, we just don't have the time and, and we don't have the capability of building projects like that. So I would say find two or three producers who make the sort of things that you want to make or have the sensibility that you like and then partner up with them, go and see them, batter them with your ideas, get them passionate about your ideas um, and then they will know the way to get those ideas listened to because it's just really hard for an idea that comes into an inbox from an individual. I mean, I knock ideas back to production companies quite often, um, but it's the producers who can turn that idea into the thing that can really be sold. So I would look for the people that you admire in terms of producers and badger them and get your voice heard. That's what I would do. I, I would say one quick thing as well. If you are a, um, a stand-up, um, so I'm in comedy entertainment, so we're constantly looking for talent. If you look at somebody like Mo Gilligan, um, who is... Yeah, so he's co-host of Big Nasty. He's now, we've just got a six-part series away with him. He, you know, he, he does stand-up, and he's an amazing stand-up, but a lot of his um, success came from his Instagram videos and his YouTube. Um, so if you've got ideas, you've got something to say, just make it. You don't need loads of equipment. You don't need loads of stuff. Film yourself on your phone. Put it on Instagram. Get a following. We'll discover it. It's our job to sort of look for people and find the people that nobody else has found. So just... Do it. Write your, write your sketch, write your thing up, put it online, people will find you. If it's funny and it's brilliant, which I'm sure it is, people will find you. So just make it and be ballsy and we'll find you in the end. Right, we've only got time for one more question because we've all talked too much. One more, first hand up. Lady there with the blonde hair. I think it's blonde or pink. Uh, a bit of both, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you were talking about how production is... Um, quite good if you want, like production experience is quite good if you want to work in development, but I've kind of struggled to make that um, change from production to development. So when I started out, I did a couple of uh, research internships in development teams, but since then I've always been stuck in production and I'm now a production coordinator, but I can't seem to make the, like, the next step into development. So if you have any tips, I'd love to hear it. I think, well, let's go to Chitsi, because you obviously had this trouble. So what would you say, and then Helen as a person that runs a development team in an indie? I think, um, well, I don't know. Mine was very personal in that I was like, I do not want anyone else defining what my career is. So I'm going to push really, really hard. I'm going to tell everyone that I really want to do development, and I'm going to prove that I really want to do development. Um, and so I basically just looked for all opportunities, sent my CV, made contact. And I suppose it really helps if you have relationships with certain companies, and you can just try and get in. So one of the things that people do say you do is like you do speak to just the head of development wherever you're working send them ideas like let them know or like what I would also do is like ask to come into brainstorm so that they could see that you do genuinely have a passion for it and then eventually I was just lucky and like DSP took me on and you know like Helen was saying with the craft of writing like the head of development I did say oh I'm, I'm really anxious about my writing can you help and so regularly we just sat down and they'd read the stuff that I've written to help me like come up with ideas or like how to make it better and then with generating ideas I still feel like I need to learn how to do that and sell them confidently so I'm always like looking for ways to improve yourself so I think just be like really committed to it and try really really hard in all the ways that you think you can do and then use your skill coordinating 
for your research skills to be like, oh, I can do re this really well for you. So I sort of tried to use my casting skills of being like, actually, I can use my casting skills to like, help you so I can help with tasters and stuff. And then it just, you know, worked out. Any additional comments, Helen? No, I think that's really got it covered off. If it's something that you really want to do, don't be downhearted if it doesn't happen instantly. And if you, whenever you are in a company, what, what, as a researcher, as a coordinator, like Jitsi says, introduce yourself to the development team. They've normally got more on their plate than they can handle. So if you have a spare capacity or a moment to offer to lend a hand, get involved, ask if you can go to brainstorms, um, bring an idea, bring something that you found on YouTube, bring some a talent that you've seen, bring a story that you've seen in a paper. And, I mean, anybody potentially could be a development person if they're alive and interested in the world and things strike their fancy <laughs> that they'd like to see on TV. So do it and show them that you're capable. Good luck. Yeah. Being alive. Key skill, people. <laughs> Be alive. Um, I'm afraid that's, that's all the time we've got, but please do join me in a round of applause saying thank you very much to Helen, Chitsi, Guy, and Rian.